Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to the other side of Labor Day and today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and we're recording this on a cool September morning in Portland, Oregon, where summer has begun to beat a slow retreat and the faintest whisper of fall is in the air. I often find that the turning point created by Labor Day is the most profound and unexpected moment in the entire college admission cycle. It's as though over one weekend, we go from feeling like we've got plenty of time to work on everything to feeling like we're completely behind. So whether you're feeling behind or right on top of things, our show will help move you along with some great advice and support. Today, we're focusing on you seniors. We'll close our show with a conversation about the FAFSA, what it is and how should it be completed. We'll also dive into a handful of essay supplements from a trio of small schools in the Philadelphia area. But to kick everything off today, we thought we'd give you our best recommendations about well, letters of recommendation. Joining me from the afternoon in New Jersey is my colleague, Lisa Albro, formerly of the Goucher College Admission Office and two-time director of college counseling at independent high schools. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ian. And it is a, a cool day here in uh, the uh, Mid-Atlantic as, as well. So opposite coast, similar weather. That's right. Fall, I think, is in the air. It's amazing how quickly it turns. Um, we are looking forward to it out here. I think we're excited that it's on the way. Um, yep. But maybe students aren't so much because of all the things that are going to be expected of them. Um, and one of the things about you know going back to school here in the fall is that you start reconnecting with your teachers, with your counselor. Um, Those adults are once again in front of you. And that might mean that you're ready to start asking for letters of recommendation or at least facilitating the process of getting those letters of recommendation. And we want to give some advice about how to work through that. But I think first, why don't you tell our listeners just roughly what they can expect in terms of letter requirements. How many letters are required? Who typically has to write them? You know that it's going to depend from school to school. But in general, what should students expect? Mm -hmm. Great question. So by and large, many schools will want recommendation letters. I would say probably the majority of schools will want recommendation letters from teachers, a teacher or maybe two teachers and a counselor. Uh, The counselor letter of recommendation is pretty much the standard at most schools. And so usually, I don't want to say always, but usually a student shouldn't have to ask the counselor since the counselor pretty much knows it's his or her job to write this letter. Although the counselor will oftentimes have a document or, or some kind of a form that they need the student to complete, either through Naviance, if the school uses Naviance, uh, or just a, a handout or a worksheet or, or a Google Doc even, who knows, uh, that will be kind of like a questionnaire. A lot of uh, counselors call it a brag sheet. So you may have heard this term before. I actually used to use these when I was a counselor. And really, they're just there to capture some information about the student that either a counselor who might know the student pretty well may not already know or just might kind of, uh, you know, bring that home to the the counselor or remind them of something. But 
I think more importantly, for counselors at larger high schools where they don't always get the opportunity to know their students really well, it's going to give them some biographical information about that student that will better help them to write that letter of recommendation in a way that makes it a little more personal, a little more anecdotal perhaps even. Uh, and sometimes they ask parents to also complete a parent brag sheet right. too. Right. So that's, that's one part of it. Teachers don't always ask for those items. Sometimes they might ask for something like that, um, but it, students do need to ask teachers for recommendations where they don't always have to approach the counselor to ask for the recommendation. They want to make sure they're on the counselor's radar screen and, and communicating with their counselor, of course. Let's think about teacher recommendations for a moment because teachers won't automatically just write letters of recommendation for students. They'll need to know that a student is, wanting that recommendation. Um, Occasionally, a teacher might approach a student and say, I would love to write a recommendation for you. That that doesn't always happen, but I've known teachers in my career who have said to a student, you really want me to write your letter of recommendation (laughs) for you. And it's hard to refuse an offer like that when when it's given to you. Um, But usually a teacher has a good reason. Right. Yeah, for, yeah for absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, with respect to asking, you know, the it, it, it sort of reminds me of the old the phrase, um, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And the second best time is today. Um, and the best time to have asked a teacher for a letter of recommendation was probably last spring, um, just as the year was wrapping up. But if you haven't done that already, the second best time is sometime this week. Um, because you want to give your teacher plenty of lead time. And I think, Lisa, what you were sort of referring to when you talk about having a brag sheet or filling out a questionnaire is you want to help counselors and teachers to be in a position to sort of make this as easy on them as possible because you're making a big ask when you ask someone to write a letter of recommendation on your behalf. They're typically happy to do it, but there is work required. So what are some other things that students might be able to do to help to put their teachers and counselor in the right position to effectively facilitate that letter of recommendation? Mm-hmm. Well, certainly when it comes to the teachers, one of the things I always ask my students to do now and, and used to ask my students to do when I was on the high school side was reflect on their time in that, student, in that teacher's class and think about a few things. Maybe jot down a few thoughts in a couple of paragraphs, doesn't have to be long, uh, with regard to maybe what were some of their favorite lessons that were taught in that class? What are some of their favorite things they learned or studied in that class? Uh, what were some things that maybe challenged them uh, that they got a lot out of or they, they got motivation from? Uh, what were some of their proudest moments in that class? And maybe what were some other lessons that they they took with them at the conclusion of that class that maybe propelled them into the next course that was connected to that class. Um, very often I found that when teachers would read these, on, at least when I was on the high school side and I would talk with the teachers frequently, teachers would say, wow, you know, I, I didn't remember this until this student brought this up for me. So thank you for having him think this through. Sometimes teachers would say to me, you know, I was going to write about this, but hearing that this was important to the student made it even more clear that I should write about this anyway. So it just gives them something else to think about that they may not have already had in mind, or maybe they did have in mind, but it's just kind of emphasizing that they should reflect on that moment. That's right. And I think that if you are 
you know, if you're a student that feels really confident doing that, I would absolutely recommend doing so. You can also ask a teacher, what can I provide for you that might be helpful? You can put the ball in their court a little bit too. Um, and, and in that regard, you're showing that there's some thoughtfulness about what that process looks like. Communication, I think, is really critical. And, you know, not only does it help them to write a better letter on time, it also helps them to feel more positively about you, right? If you manage this process maturely and you are organized and you coordinate it well, then they're gonna say, oh wow, this student's really organized. I might include that in my letter, right? So there are ways that you can massage even how that teacher feels about you um, in a way with with how you're you're working on the letter. Um, Lisa, I wanna take a moment to sort of think about, we're talking about the process of asking and I think that that's something that most students are sort of in the rhythm of doing now, um, but some students might also still be trying to decide who they want to ask for letters of recommendation. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some good guidelines or maybe even rules around who writes letters of recommendation from that teacher perspective? We know the counselor is essentially non-negotiable. It's always going to be the same person for each student, um, but what about teacher letters of recommendation? Sure. So, so teachers to consider for letters of recommendation should be teachers who have a, a fairly recent perspective of the student. So, you know, you don't want to think all the way back to freshman year if that teacher has never taught you again, because that was the ninth grade you, and this is now the twelfth grade you, and colleges want to know a little bit more about you now, the contemporary student. Um, so think about maybe junior teachers or even senior teachers that might have taught you previously and have already known you and are, are teaching you again. That, that could be a good way to go. Um, thinking about uh, teachers who you feel know you best, maybe teachers maybe that you feel connected to in some way, maybe you uh, just, you know, get along with them in a certain way, um, you really stood out in their class in a certain way, or sometimes it can re- really be helpful if there was a class where you didn't have the easiest time of it academically. Maybe you had to work extra hard. Maybe you even struggled a little bit, but that teacher can vouch for the fact that you put in your best effort and you really tried and they can talk about how they were impressed by the way you stuck with something where maybe the easier thing would have been to drop the class and go to an easier class, but you didn't. And that can reflect very well on an application for a student who might be concerned about a grade if legitimately the teacher can say this about you. So, you know, think about which teachers have the best stories to tell about you and have the most connection to you and can maybe talk about you in in a way that helps bring you to life in a three-dimensional way. Right. And I, I think what you're you're not hearing Lisa say is anything that is necessarily connected to the grade, right? You don't choose the teacher that gave you the highest grade of all because that grade is on your transcript. It's going to be information that the uh, admission officer is going to have access to. So saying, well, mm-hmm. I'm only going to choose teachers that gave me A's because they gave me A's means that you're missing a huge part of what the teacher really speaks to. And that's not just how you did in the class, but what you did every single day, how you interacted with your peers, um, how you asked questions, what you did when you didn't understand material, whether you showed up prepared or not. Those kinds of things are the kinds of things that admissions officers are looking to learn about you. Um, Lisa, what about subject matter? How should students think about choosing teachers from different subjects, maybe the same subject? Should they, you know, think about teachers who teach elective courses? What's a good guideline from that point of view? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, Ian, because I know I didn't cover that in my response before. It's a great idea to look at your core courses or your academic courses for teacher recommendations as kind of the first choice, because colleges generally want to know what kind of a student you are, not necessarily what kind of a musician or artist or, or phys ed uh, participant you are. They, they kind of want to know what you're like in the classroom as an academic student. Some exceptions might be for students who are applying to specific arts programs, music programs, something like that, mm-hmm. where you might need an arts recommendation, but generally you're going to want one from the core five subjects, math, science, English, history, foreign language. Uh, and it's a good idea for it to be, uh, it, it, you know, from a class where you can't, there's something to say about you beyond just that you got an A or that you did well. Uh, so think about those subjects where you did well, um, but also where teachers can speak about you. Um, th- but there may be a supplemental letter of recommendation that can come from, say, uh, a teacher in a subject that's not academic, like an elective, where you maybe particularly stood out. It's important that students look at what the guidelines are that each college specifies for numbers of letters of recommendation. And you really don't want to go over that number if you can avoid it. So if a school says it requires one teacher letter, you know, maybe you have two teachers and maybe that's okay to send the second teacher letter, but please don't send three, you know, and might even be pushing it to send two, but maybe not. You know, I think that's something to kind of take under advisement a little bit and decide, does it make sense? Is this superfluous or is this a good thing to have? Right. Um, if if a school, sometimes more selective colleges might ask for two letters from teachers in addition to the counselor letter. And so in that case, yeah, you'll want those two letters for sure. Is it okay to have a third? It might be okay to have a third if there's somebody who can say something significant about you, not just a third letter for the sake of a third letter. Right. We're not right. looking to sort of build a huge mountain of evidence. This isn't about sort of the more <laughs> testimony on my behalf I get, the better. Um, it's about having really focused, targeted um, endorsements from your teachers. And I, I think that when students show that they've got three, four additional letters of recommendation, that starts to become, well, you know, the student has a hard time making a decision. And also you run the risk of, you know, sending a message that you don't respect the time of the reader because every additional letter <laughs> recommendation has to be read and evaluated. And, uh, you know, that can be something I think where where readers can be a little bit frustrated by a student that has a lot. So always do what's required. Mm-hmm. Consider whether to do what's optional. Um, and you'll see what, what colleges allow through that common app. But typically, you don't want to go uh, beyond that unless there's a, a really significant circumstance where you have an additional letter that makes a big difference. Um, Correct. So I want I, I want to sort of send you back just a little bit uh, to your um, counseling days. Uh, we, in the last sort of minute that we have, I wonder if you have any tips or advice for families about how to, you know, facilitate this from. Um, just a logistical standpoint. Are there things that students, you know, back in my day, I gave stamped envelopes to teachers and counselors and and address them to the colleges. That's not something students do anymore. Um, What should students be expecting from that point of view? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I would follow the school's guidelines, which very often they'll now have on the guidance webpage, 
saying, here's our process, here's what you have to do. And sometimes some web pages spell it out very nicely and some are a little bit more cryptic. But uh, if the school uses Naviance or some other similar platform, the student will want to make sure that they're on that platform, that they're registering all the things they have to register. For example, the names of the teachers they're asking for recommendations, uh, the deadlines that they need to meet, the colleges they're applying to, and the deadlines that they're applying for so that the counselor can spread that all out and look. I know when I was on the counseling side, I would log in every morning to Naviance and look to see, okay, what transcript requests were on my plate that day for Mm -hmm. which schools, and I would start to package up those items. And at the time, I did send the physical documents. That was before this e-docs, which is is a thing that a lot of families probably know about or have heard about, where they can send a lot of things electronically now through the schools. Um, I was in the schools back in the paper days where we actually mailed envelopes <laughs> full, of, right. full of things, like transcripts and letters. So I would collect all of those from the teachers, and I put my own my, my letter in and the transcript, and all of that would go in one packet. So a little bit different now at many schools, but the students should find out what is the school's procedure, what items are they responsible for providing, whether it is envelopes or whether it is the names of teachers on the Common App or on Naviance or what have you. Just find out what the procedure is. And if they can't find that spelled out anywhere, go see your counselor. Go ask the counseling office. The secretary in the counseling office sometimes can be a great resource that the counselor is not available to. Definitely. I think that communication is really essential. And though, even though technology has really taken over a lot of this process, it's important to communicate with your counselor and your teachers to ask questions. It's really what they're there for. Lisa, thanks for coming on the show today to talk to our listeners about these letters. I really appreciate your time and your expertise as always. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. All right, y'all, when we come back, we're going to take a trip to Philadelphia. So please stow your carry-on luggage in the overhead bins, buckle up, and prepare for takeoff. We'll be landing after this break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. 
Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show, folks, and welcome to Philadelphia. One of our favorite things to do every fall is dive into a conversation about some of the different essay supplements required by applicants to the wide range of colleges and universities from coast to coast. And today we're looking at three schools in the Philadelphia area, Bryn Mawr, Haverford, and Swarthmore. Now, if you've already got those schools on your Common App dashboard, you can pull up their individual prompts and you can follow along with us, or you can go to our website at getintocollege.com slash app view, that's A-P-P view, and request the essay supplements for these and up to two additional schools. So it's a great way to just get the material in front of you before we start this conversation. And finally, because nobody wants to hear me talk to myself for 15 minutes, I'd like to welcome <laughs> another friend and colleague from way out east, Miss Julia Jones. Julia, welcome back to the radio show. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm glad to have you here. And and we've got some sort of different categories that these schools run through. But I just want to give a little summary for our listeners who, you know, maybe don't have these uh, right in front of them. Um, Haverford College has two essay supplements. One of them we'll call the Honor Code Essay, which we'll dive into a little bit later. The other we'll call Why Haverford. Um, Swarthmore has just one essay. It's about 150 to 250 words, and it's Why Swarthmore? Um, Bryn Mawr has two short essays. One is to elaborate on one of your extracurricular activities in about 50 to 100 words, and that's that's a relic of the old Common App. And then their other is um, a question about the legacy that students hope to leave behind. So those are the things that we're going to dive into. And Julia, I want to start with something we've talked about on the show before, but I think it's always really helpful to get new and, and distinct perspectives from our educators, which is that why this college essay? Um, and I yeah. want to do it with a lens on Swarthmore first, because Swarthmore doesn't ask anything else. The only thing yeah. they ask is, why are you interested in applying to and attending Swarthmore? So what does it mean for a student to engage with this question uh, in their supplement? Sure. Yeah, it's a great question, and I think it is. It's it's a pretty common question you're going to see in a lot of applicant, uh, a lot of applications. Um, and you know, I think it can be. It, it's a challenging one, I think, for students because um, it's it's. I, I think the underlying um, uh, part of that question, I think, isn't there, but should be there in your head. Is not just why are you, you know, why is, you know, Swarthmore a great school? Why, you know, why does it? But why are you applying there? You know, what, you know, what. Um, what 
what excites you about the school? You know, what what you know what's good about Swarthmore to you? And I think right. that's really got to be the key. Is you know they they know why they're wonderful. <laughs> um, it's it's really about okay, why do you, you know what are the things that you're interested in that you're looking for, and then how you know what are the unique qualities of that school that that connect to your interests? And so I think that you know that approach for any wide this college essay will that should be at the forefront. It's you know start even though it's not technically asking um, something about you, it is it kind of is. It's it's you know they want to know what you know what you're looking for and then how you're going to um, really be be realizing that at at their school. That's right. I think that's that's the first thing I start with with it whenever we look at this is that you can kind of imagine a Venn diagram where you've got two circles. One is you, the student. The other is the college, in this case, Swarthmore. And the essay should live at the intersection between those two things. So if you find that what you're writing is reading like admissions copy about Swarthmore, it's talking about how great the school is, but it doesn't have anything to do with you. You're going in the wrong direction. Um, Exactly. So, uh, and Haverford has a very similar one. It says, uh, explain what motivated you to apply and what excites you most as you imagine your Haverford experience. I think what's Mm -hmm. interesting about the Haverford question is it says, what excites you most? And there's almost a singularity there that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, they want you to focus on one idea, whereas Smothmore sort of leads the door open for a lot of things. What do you think about the difference between students focusing in on the thing they're most interested in about a school versus a variety of different features that they find attractive? Right. Well, I think that, you know, in, in, I mean, depth of, you know, sometimes it's kind of what we instruct students when they're talking about their, their bigger common app essay really is, you know, it's obviously, you know, you, you can sometimes focus on one piece and really go into some depth versus, you know, trying to kind of do too much and, and throw everything in the kitchen sink in there. So, so it can be, you know, challenging. Um, but I think it's, it's, uh, and for Haverford, you know, yeah, what, what they're, um, you know, talking about what excites you most. Um, I think part of it is because they also, you know, are asking a little bit about Haverford and their other question, which I know we're going to get to as well, but you know, it's, it, cause I, you know, when you think about what sets a school apart and what makes them unique, they're on our code is pretty, um, it's pretty unique and it is kind of their set of values. So in some ways I feel like it, you know, that you could include some of that in, in that first part and then, you know, really think about, okay, is there something else, you know, something else that you haven't mentioned or some other aspect of that, that mission statement, that honor code that, that's, that, you know, really excites you. So, um, right. so I think you can, you know, it, it does give you, um, a little bit more, flexibility and a little bit more leeway since you have two essays where you can kind of weave, weave that in. Um, right. Whereas for Swarthmore, it's, it's more, you know, it's, it's one, you, you know, you've got one shot here to really kind of connect yourself to the university and to what you're, what you're interested in. Yeah, you know, I not to jump around too much, but I, that idea of using two essays to tell different parts of a potentially the same story is also something that yeah. students could do with the Bryn Mawr essay, which asks mm-hmm. about extracurricular activities um, to, yep. to elaborate on one of them, and then to talk about a legacy that you might leave behind from the past four years, right? So you might actually talk yeah. about an activity that also is connected to your legacy, but you have to be smart about not overlapping different topics. You don't want to be redundant in any way, especially when you have so few words that you can use in this context. Um, now, right. Julia, you brought up the the Haverford Honor Code essay, which I think is really interesting. It says, um, yeah. I'm going to read it out because I think that the, the phrasing in here is interesting. Uh, tell us about a topic or issue that sparks your curiosity and gets you intellectually excited. 
for me, that's a little bit of a hint about what they tend mm-hmm. to care about at their school. Um, how do you think the environment at Haverford, including the framework of the honor code, would foster your continued intellectual growth? So to me, there feels like there's two parts to this topic. One is to talk about that topic that gets you intellectually excited. The other is to think about the framework of the honor code. And you have that honor code in front of you. You, you were talking before that we went on the air that you think that that's a really interesting feature of Haverford. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, when you think honor code at colleges, you know, I mean, I think that you think, okay, yeah, honesty and, and, and you know, it's, it's kind of respecting, um, you know, uh, sort of student independence and, and um, but, but I think it's more than that. I, when I re- look at the honor code and it's, you know, if you go to the Haverford website on their supplement, it, it's right there. So, you know, they're obviously giving you the honor code right there, right before the question, because, you know, so you right. can kind of take a look at it. And, and, you know, it is kind of what they call, it's a set of values in some ways is, you know, they value things like academic freedom, um, you know, where you can, you know, uh, do uh, exams in, in your dorm room. And, and you know, and, and it's, so it is that sort of, of um, real freedom and independence and trust that they have in students. But it's also about community. And they, they talk a little bit about, um, you know, creating that supportive environment for both for learning, um, leadership and engagement, um, really giving students a chance to find their own um, voice in, in what they're studying and what they're what they're learning. So um, and and that sort of st- what they call student agency of really getting students to take ownership of their of their academics. So so I think you know there are a lot of different facets and and that I think if you you know pinpoint or think about you know is there something you know that you really are excited about um, intellectually um, does not have to be in the classroom either. It can be you know a, a book that you've read or something that really you know um, uh, has just kind of or an issue or, or a conversation, something that has gotten you, um, that, that you really want to learn more about or have learned more about. And then how does that connect to one of these kind of facets of the honor code? I think that, that could be an approach. And I think that's, it seems to be what they're sort of looking for here. Right. And that, and that goes back to that idea of that Venn diagram, right? You've got your interest, you've got their honor code. Somehow those two things come together. And so that's, that's yep. you within the context of Haverford. But as, as I was hearing you sort of describe this, um, the honor code and talking about this particular prompt, it reminded me of another feature of essay supplements in general, which is to help educate students about the specific character of these different schools, right? Haverford is asking this question, not only because they want to know what a student's answer to it is, but also because they want students who apply to Haverford to know that the honor code exists, to know that that's an important part of what Haverford offers. And so sometimes colleges will sort of lead students in a particular direction with an essay because they want students to understand that that's a a piece of the character of that institution. And I I think that that's really helpful as you're sort of thinking about how you want to respond to these essays is to take a step back and think about, all right, what are the characteristics of this institution, especially those that tend to be a little bit different, even across my applicant list. And for a, a young lady who is applying to these three schools, obviously a young man could not apply to these three schools, but a young lady who's applying to these three, you could say, well, they're all in the Philadelphia area, but I probably don't want to write about that because that doesn't draw distinction between them. How can I even draw distinctions between these three schools that are about the same size and have similar philosophies in the similar part of the country? What makes them unique within even that group? I think that that can be a really helpful way of thinking about uh, writing something like this. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because I think when, even when we, you know, we're, we're ta- we're, when I realized we were talking about these three schools, and I'm like, wow, yeah, they are all part of a consortium. They are all together. Um, they are very similar in a lot of ways, but they're also very different. And so I think, and it's those differences that that's, you know, what um, of those differences, what, what, of their unique qualities, each of them, you know, appeals to you as a student. And that's, that's, I think, what to really focus on as you start to unpack and approach each of these, these essays, whether it is just a straightforward, you know, why are you applying to, to Swarthmore or, you know, the more nuanced um, questions for Haverford and even for Bryn Mawr. That's right. Now, um, I wanted to ask before we sort of move on to the Brimar uh, questions uh, about research, right? So you took a look at the honor code through the application itself. Um, yeah. I went before we did this section, I, I did some just uh, reading to refamiliarize myself with these schools um, on the Princeton Review to see sort of what yeah. the descriptions were from students. What are some ways that students can do research to help inform their essays? Um, and how might a visit come into play when they're doing something like this? Sure. Yeah, no, it's great. And I think your your research was very similar to mine and that, you know, I, I definitely like, you know, the Princeton Review's sort of, you know, very quick um, but accurate, I think, you know, assessments of, okay, here's what students are talking about. Um, but I usually compare that to, you know, perhaps uh, looking at, at the actual college website. And, and sometimes it can be helpful if you, you know, if you have an idea of, of an, an area that you're interested in studying to kind of just take a deep dive into, you know, the, the department pages on the website of that, you know, are there are there aspects of the program, are there courses um, that really jump out at you, or things that are research that may be happening um, on campus too? So, you know, again, connecting it to your own interests. What are things that you're involved in that you're passionate about right now? And then look to see what are, what are ways that I would be able to get involved, if it's, whether it's debate or theater or, um, you know, political activism. You know, what, what are the ways that that's happening, you know, on the Bryn Mawr campus, on the Haverford campus? Are there things that you can kind of connect to? Um, obviously, a visit can be another, obviously, great way to, to, to learn about a school. But it's not just about taking a tour or looking at buildings. It's really... Kind of investigating and thinking about what 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 appealed to you on the visit. Were there things that stood out to you? Where there's a uh, you know a pretty unique um, uh, senior thesis project that maybe the tour guide mentioned, or um, a really interesting residential uh, uh, you know kind of setup or or opportunities. So so things of that, yeah. that nature, things that appeal to you, could be. You know, as long as you can kind of make the case as to why that's important to you, and you know that those can be things to to uh, to you know of note. That's great. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I, I want to turn now to the, finally, the Bryn Mawr um, topics. We've got about three minutes or so to talk about these okay. two, but I wanted to just sort of first touch on the briefly elaborate on one of your extracurricular activities or work experiences question, um, just because it's present in a lot of these uh, essay supplements. Um, and I, I'm curious what your take is on the phrase briefly elaborate. What should a student include in this space? What are, what are these colleges looking for here? kind of behind this question, too, of, you know, it's not just about, okay, tell us what you did. Um, you know, it, it's, it's tell, you know, why is this important? Why was this something that's been, obviously, you know, one would assume it's a pretty meaningful um, experience or opportunity or activity if you're, if you're going to choose to write about it. So, so what was it that you, that changed you or shaped you or why is this important to you? I think that's going to be more important than actually, you know, again, tell, kind of detailing all the different responsibilities and roles that you had. That's probably going to also be on your 
your um, activity section of, of your application. So this is really giving a little bit of a glimmer inside, inside that activity in terms of why it's important and meaningful to you. Right, exactly. Perfect. And now we've got a couple of minutes. And I still want to make sure that we talk about this final um, yeah. prompt from Brimark because I really like it. As you prepare to join a new college community, reflect on your role as a community member throughout the past four years, high school. Um, what legacy do you hope to leave behind? And I love this because I traveled through Asia with the Bryn Mawr rep uh, who is there uh, also recruiting in Asia. And I remember just in her sort of talking about Bryn Mawr, how important the concept of legacy and connection to a place was for that, you know, yeah. that college. And it's so great that they ask this question within the context of a high school student. Um, what do you think, uh, Julia, that, that a student can focus in on here? Yeah, I think, and, and again, this is another case where, you know, I think the question does tell you a bit about what they value and what, and, and since, you know, community and legacy is really important. So, so I think it is, it's, and they're really genuinely curious about, again, what, what your legacy would be. What are the things that you're involved in? And I think, you know, again, the underlying thing is how are you going to, you know, ultimately, how are you going to fit into this, this community um, of, of, you know, women who empower, who are, you know, being empowered and, and, you know, really part of this sort of um, incredible network network of, of uh, young women, um, you know, and, and, and so I think that that, it, you know, it, it's, it's really thinking about, um, you know, about, about not just what you've done and, and what you're going to be leaving um, your high school community, but then how that's going to integrate into, into the Bryn Mawr community, um, you know, focusing obviously on, you know, the fact that they are a women's college. And so what that, what does that mean in terms of, right. um, you know, the, the, the community and the legacy that you're, you're hoping to kind of continue there? Right. You want your legacy to be consistent with the values, not only of yourself and your high school community, but also there should be some overlap, again, with that the Bryn Mawr community. You want to see a fit in that space, right? So there is a sense in which those two things are going to connect and intersect and make an impact. Um, Julia, I think somehow... We did it. We, talk, we talked about all of these. I, I thought, wow, are we going to have enough content? But it, that's never the problem. Um, so much for, <laughs> right. No, for it's coming on all of, and, even with these essays, it's, and it's like, how do we fit it all in? We did. That's right. That's right. Exactly. You can do it, too, uh, with your essay writing at home. So, Julia, right. I want to thank you for coming on and talking through these uh, three schools' um, essay prompts. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, folks, when we come back, we're going to turn our attention to college finance and that big form that everybody needs to fill out that nobody knows how to pronounce. So to figure out how to say it, um, stick around. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Now, yesterday, I delivered a webinar on preparing college applications for over 350 participants, and we had an hour presentation and 30 minutes of Q&A. And in that Q&A period, I got quite a few questions about financial aid. And when it came time to answer those questions, I said, you know, I'm not really the person to answer these for you. I should really kick you over to my college finance colleagues. And fortunately, we're diving into the FAFSA today, and I don't have to be the one answering the questions because we've got Jan Combs, college finance expert, who's here to help answer them for us. Jan, thanks for coming back to the show. Absolutely. Happy to be here. One of my favorite subjects. The FAFSA, right, which sometimes is called the FAFSA, but is FAFSA. And um, let's learn a little bit about it. And I think we do this every year, but it's important to do a, you know, re-approach this topic every year because it matters for a new set of students. So what is the FAFSA and why should a family complete it? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I'll tell you what that acronym stands for first off. Uh, So it's the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, or FAFSA, as you have so nicely said. Um, And this really is the main form to access financial aid programs. And that's going to include your federal programs, um, state-based program in, I would say, the majority of states in the country, as well as need-based financial aid from the majority of colleges out there. So it's a super important form to complete really for anyone who wants to access any financial aid. And that's going to include the federal student loan program, federal work programs, and, of course, those wonderful grants or gift aid that don't need to be repaid, 
you know, from the colleges themselves that really help reduce, you know, total costs overall. And I will just, you know, remind folks that it's all colleges require this, whether it's a four-year school, two-year school, public, private, in-state, out-of-state, even graduate schools uh, will utilize the FAFSA as well. So a super important document um, that's required by all colleges out there. Great. So... The FAFSA, I think, you know, one of the big questions is how, how does this fit with the timeline? We we know the admissions mm-hmm. timeline in our side of the desk. Right. But what what about the uh, financial aid timeline? When does this thing come available, and how do you? Sure. Well. You know, this is actually a great time that we're having this conversation now because really just a few weeks from now is when this FAFSA will become available. So every year on that wonderful date of October 1st is when the new FAFSA for the upcoming academic year will become available. Um, and you can access it online via the fafsa.gov website. Um, and starting last year, you could actually access it as well right on your phone. Um, there's an app through the Federal Student Aid Department that you can also access your FAFSA. So it's pretty easy. It comes on October 1st, online or phone app. And so for students that are current seniors in high school, this deadline, oh, sorry, this um, kind of launch date of, of October 1st is super important because it's just right around the corner. Um, and for kids that are in college, um, just a reminder that you do need to reapply via the FAFSA each and every year, and you want to make sure you're completing the new version that will be, you know, really available, as I said, on October 1st, just a few weeks from now. Gotcha. Now, when I'm talking with families, I will often say that, you know, there's a lot of work to be done here and parents want to help. And one of the ways that they can help is to start looking at the financial aid requirements. But I, mm-hmm. that might not always be true for every family. Who needs to work on this FAFSA? Who should be engaged in the process of collecting this information and putting it into the form? Great. Well, actually, both, um, in all honesty, for it to be most successful and most streamlined, I, I really want the student and their parent or guardian to work together on this process. So, as the name implies, it is an application for financial assistance for the particular student. So, the student should be involved. The student is one who actually should begin the application with their information. But a parent is super, a parent or guardian is super important as well because the form is going to ask for information about the family's household, about the parent income, and some asset questions as well. So, both really should work together in tandem, side by side, to make sure that the form is corrected in, you know, fully and and completely um, and accurately. Gotcha. So fully, completely, accurately. But the question is, what kind of information is being collected here? What do I need to have in order to go smartly through this form? What should I have at my fingertips? Sure. So certainly information about the student specifically to start off. You know, their address, their social security number. I know myself, I've got three kids, two in college, and I don't have my kids' social security number memorized. So having that number in advance, of course, you'll likely know their dates of birth, um, year in college, household size. So demographic, biographical information like that um, is really how the form will start out. But then, of course, having a list of the colleges that the student intends on applying to, that's super important. And that way, when they complete this one centralized financial aid application, it will get sent to all of the schools that really need that data. So that's important as well. And then financial data, um, both from the student and the parent. So that's going to be tax information as well as there are some questions related to assets as well. So I just want to be kind of clear with folks to hopefully 
help you know what data to have on hand. So if you're right now, if your student, say, is a senior in high school, um, will be, you know, going to college in 2020, um, it's the 2018 tax data that you'll want to have on hand. So not just your tax return, um, but your W-2 forms as well. That would be really helpful data. So a lot of financial data, uh, but a lot of biographical data as well. Um, and, of course, that school list would be helpful too. That's the majority of the data that you'll need in order to um, complete the FAFSA. And, of course, probably not things that you're going to have memorized, right? What's in box exactly. two of your W-2. You're not going to know that. So it exactly. sounds like there's a, I don't. There's I a, wouldn't expect there's a lot, of, uh, lot of information here on the FAFSA. Um, do you, does it need everything from your family? I mean, do I need to start digging into my 401k and, and my 529s and looking at all that information as well? Right, great question. So absolutely it needs the tax data and the W-2s and then some asset information. So let me tell you what you don't need to report on the FAFSA. That's a lot easier. So absolutely you don't need those 401k statements or those Roth IRA statements or traditional IRA statements. None of that retirement information is necessary to be reported on the FAFSA. So that's a good thing. So I would say the types of things that you would want handy in would be, say, your bank statements checking and saving accounts, for example, maybe stock or mutual fund accounts, those types of assets are reportable. Uh, And then you mentioned 529. Um, Yes, that is something that is reported as a parent asset. So you'd want to know statement balances for those types of accounts as well. Gotcha. I think that's, that's really helpful for families to be aware of. And you know, there are other things probably to think about here. The FAFSA is one piece of this big puzzle. Um, but besides completing this FAFSA, what are some of the other things that families should be thinking about here? Sure, absolutely. So as I mentioned before, the FAFSA becomes available on October 1st. Now, I, I always like to say to parents, you don't need to do it on October 1st, but sometime during the month of October, early October, sorry, early November is a great time to do it. That way you're meeting all deadlines. So since right now we're waiting for the FAFSA to launch, um, there's definitely some things that can be done beforehand to really uh, hopefully make your process go a lot smoother. And one of those things is to set up your, and I'm going to kind of spell it out slowly, F-S-A-I-D, and that stands for Federal Student Aid ID. Um, And that is basically a username and password combination that is going to allow the student applicant and the parent who's helping them with their form to sign the FAFSA electronically, and that way it gets submitted and processed in, in a timely manner. So you actually can set up this FSA ID early. You can go ahead and do it right online now. You can do it through the FAFSA.gov website, or you can go directly to the FSA ID website as well, which is, as, as I've said, FSAID.ed.gov. And essentially, you're just going to answer some questions, name, address, phone number, email address, birth date, social security number, um, and then they allow you to set up a username and password. That way, you've kind of got that out of the way before you dive in to tackle your FAFSA. And that way, when you're done you know, putting your data into the FAFSA, you simply will key in your username and password combination, and then your FAFSA will get immediately submitted and in the queue for processing. So that's a good gotcha. thing um, to get started on now. Perfect. I think that's great. Now, that seems like um, a great little tip. 
this also seems like a pretty comprehensive process. There's a lot that goes into it. There are a lot of expectations. There's, you know, you really want to get everything right. Um, is this a process that can be helped by some tips and tricks? Are there ways to help families better navigate this? Or is the experience just what it's going to be for everyone regardless? Well, I mean, part of it is it's a necessary part of applying for aid. Everyone's going to need to do it. But I can absolutely give you some time-saving tips. So the first, of course, is to do that FSA ID in advance if you can. Um, I've also found that when I did the two for my kids, um, I have two in school this year, so I had to do two FAFSAs back-to-back. It was really helpful for me to have my tax return handy, my W-2s, their Social Security numbers, as well as their respective college list. Of course, for the older one, I was just resending it to his current school. But for the younger one, he had a number of schools that he was applying to. So just having that data on hand um, is is great, makes it go easier. The other thing is I always um, say to people, you know, wait until you have about a 45-minute block of time um, to do the FAFSA. You're not going to do it in 10 minutes. You're not going to do it in 20 minutes. You might do it in a half an hour, but allow about 45 minutes. Um, so you have it, and you can focus and get it done in one session. Not to say that you can't save and revisit it because you can, but I always like to just see if folks can have, you know, an allotment of time to really focus on the FAFSA and and do it all at once. Um, There's also two other really cool features that are somewhat new with the FAFSA, and one is called the IRS Data Retrieval Tool, and this tool essentially allows the parent and the student, if they're a tax filer, in many cases, to input their tax data directly into the FAFSA from the IRS. So what happens when you're in the FAFSA, when you get to the income section, it will ask you, do you want to use this IRS data retrieval tool to move your tax data right into the FAFSA? If you say yes, you enter some credentials, social security number, and you actually pull your real data over from the IRS tax database. So it's quick. You don't need to go line by line in your tax return. And the data is absolutely correct because it's coming from the IRS database. So I can't say enough about this tool. It's awesome. It's a time saver. Um, It's simple. It's easy. And the other reason why I love it is because when, when the colleges get your FAFSA data, they know that if you pulled your tax data over from the IRS, that it's accurate. They then don't need to follow up and ask you a whole bunch of questions about your income taxes. So from that perspective, from an administrative perspective, um, it's a big time saver after the fact as well. Perfect. So that's a super great time saver. Yeah, that's great. Now, we're here near the end of the segment, so it's a great time to ask, what happens after the FAFSA is completed when you're done? What's, what's next? Great. So as soon as you electronically sign it using that username and password that you're setting up through FSA ID, all of that data is going to be sent to each of the colleges that the student listed on that FAFSA form. So once the student is admitted to the college, the colleges will then look at the data and put together a financial aid award letter listing any programs the student is deemed eligible for. So after their acceptance comes in, then you'll also, you'll hear from the financial aid office with that award letter. The other thing that happens, um, aside from the data being sent to the schools after it's submitted, the student will also get a confirmation of the data, and it's called a student aid report. And I always encourage the student and a parent to look over it carefully 
make sure you didn't make any mistakes, you know, in your data entry. Make sure you didn't put a couple extra zeros after that one in the asset section, for example. Make sure right. the data looks good. And that way, if you do find a mistake, you can go ahead and make corrections prior to the school actually acting on the data. And the Perfect. other thing you can do, too, is if the student adds an additional college or two, they decide to add some on, you can very easily go back into your FAFSA and add some additional schools as well. That sounds great. Jan, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show and helping us make sense of the FAFSA. Absolutely. Just good luck to the families. And just remember, it's not that bad. <laughs> you can do That's it. Right. That's right. And folks, if you can't get enough of financial aid forms, you can tune in next week when we'll be talking through the CSS profile, which is an essential form for many other colleges and, and an important piece of the, piece of the financial aid puzzle. Um, in addition to that conversation, we'll do some myth busting to help your conversations with friends and families and those neighbors who think they know everything. And we'll spend some time talking through the process of submitting standardized test results to schools of interest. So you're not going to want to miss it. Until then, it's about 110 days until January 1st, but time moves faster than you think. Take little steps every day, make progress toward your goal, and you'll be across the finish line in no time. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.